O Lord God, who inhabits eternity, the heavens declare your glory, the earth your riches, the universe is your temple. Your presence fills immensity, and yet you have of your pleasure created life and communicated happiness to us. You have made us what we are and given us what we have. In you, we live and move and have our being. We thank you for your riches to us in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him in your word, where we behold his person, his character, his grace, his glory, his humiliation, sufferings, death, and his resurrection. Cause us to feel our need of his continual presence among us. Amen. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And when the people and the city authorities were, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, uh, arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, come up and join me. Right there. We learned that the Bible is not a list of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of a story. It's the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. We, we talked about how it takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every 
story in the Bible whispers his name. That, that baby, of course, is who? Jesus, that's right. And, and in what we just read in Acts, Paul is making sure that people see Jesus at the center of the story. He, he goes to the Bible to show people that God's plan was always for the rescuer to die and rise again. And, and that's just what Jesus did when he came. Jesus has to be the one at the center of the story. He's, he's the hero. He is the main character. But what happens? What happens when we misunderstand the Bible and put something other than Jesus at the center of everything? Well, think about it like this. So, our solar system. So, at the center is the. Uh, yeah, and, and here's the Earth and the Moon going around it, but there are eight other planets orbiting the Sun, right? We, we remember Pluto. <laughs> some of the planets are nearer to the Sun than the Earth, and, and some are further away. But what would happen? What would happen if the Earth and the Sun suddenly switched places? What would happen if we put the Earth at the center and the Sun started going around? I think you're, I think you're onto something. You, you might not understand exactly how the size and speed of the planet would affect things. You, you might not understand how gravity affects the planet's orbit. But do you think replacing the Sun at the center would be a good thing or a bad thing? It would be a horrible thing. Some of the planets, like Eleanor said, some would be burned immediately out of existence as they crashed into the sun. Others, others, would get slingshot around the sun and get thrown far away into deeper space. Our solar system would suffer chaos and intense heat and deadly cold, all because the sun was not at the center. Something similar happens when people forget that Jesus belongs at the center of the Bible and at the center of our lives. If I think I am the main character at the center, the good news is no longer good news. Because instead of Jesus saving me, I have to save myself. And if I think I am the main character of the story, I'm going to be so distracted by chasing what I want that I will never enjoy the rest that Jesus gives to us. I'll never be satisfied just to simply move around him and his goodness. You guys, God knew exactly what he could do when he put the sun at the center of our solar system. And he knew what he was doing when he put, not you, not me, but Jesus the center of this story. So, for you and me, let's tell God I'm sorry when I try to put myself at the center and make it all about us. And then let's keep putting Jesus at the center of everything that we believe and do. 
But because Jesus himself, he never moves from the center. Because he holds all things together. That's another reason why we call this You believe it? not already done so, open your Bibles to our passage in Acts chapter 17. We are uh, continuing uh, our uh, study here in, of, time, of Paul's time in, in Thessalonica, and we'll be glancing briefly at his time in uh, Berea as well. I'll uh, tell you now that the, the outline that's in the bulletin includes next Sunday's sermon too, so don't get too nervous about that. Um, as we as we look at it, it actually includes last Sunday's sermon too. It just kind of gives you an overview of of what we're seeing in this text. Remember that last Sunday, when we uh, first looked at at Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica, we we focused in on his strategy. Uh, we first focused on the decision to to go to Thessalonica itself. Why did uh, did Paul pass through these other cities and and go to Thessalonica? And we saw that, that the decision to go to Thessalonica was rooted in a concern for fruitfulness. Paul wanted to be a faithful minister, but part of being faithful was ministering the gospel in a way that was designed to reach the most number of people with the good news of the gospel. And so Paul's decision to go to Thessalonica showed a a concern for fruitfulness. And his decision to go to the synagogue showed his concern to glorify God's faithfulness. He, he wanted to show that, that God had, had not forgotten his promises, that he had not abandoned his, his people. The gospel was to flow through them to the ends of the earth, but the gospel was still for them. It was for any and all who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last Sunday, we, we saw how Paul's strategy revealed to us something about the very nature of the gospel and of the God of the gospel. It, it showed us that, that he has a concern rooted all the way back in eternity to save for himself a people, to reap an abundant harvest. And this morning, we'll be looking at the methods of Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica and also in Berea, and we'll see that his methods reveal to us the same God, that same concern for fruitfulness. But what we'll see is that fruitfulness only comes when we are rooted in the Scriptures properly understood. The gospel bears fruit only when we are rooted in the scriptures as uh, understanding them to be pointing us to and revealing to us Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. So let's look again at Paul's method here. He, he first, we're told, reasons from the scriptures. This is the first thing we need to see uh, about Paul's ministry. We, we see it there in verse 2. We're, we're told and when Paul went in, he, as was his custom on the On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And so here is Paul. He's going into the synagogue, as we said, and he is reasoning from the Scriptures. He's reasoning from the Scriptures about the Christ. He's explaining to them that the Christ, the promised Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead because it was only through his death and resurrection that he could accomplish the mission given to him by God. It was only through his death and resurrection that he could truly accomplish salvation for God's elect. 
And while we're not told that he, uh, the same thing explicitly about his time in Berea, it's, it's there implicitly. We, we see it in, in verse 11. Notice what we're told. We're, we're told that these Bereans were more noble. Why? Because they examined the Scriptures to see if these things were true. They, they examined the, the Scriptures. Paul was arguing from the Scriptures, and they were looking at the Scriptures to see that, oh yeah, that makes sense. Paul's, Paul's quoting the text correctly. He's, he's showing us what the Scriptures have said all along. And so we see that, that fundamental, foundational to Paul's ministry was an appeal to the Scriptures. He ministered from God's Word written. But why? Why was the ministry of the Word, why was the, the appeal to the Scriptures central to Paul's ministry? I think we can understand why Paul rooted his ministry in the Word when we understand his understanding of the Gospel. How did Paul see the Gospel? How did Paul see this, this message that he proclaimed? Well, he, he tells us in Romans chapter 1, he, he tells us that he is an apostle of God set apart for the Gospel. And he refers to the Gospel there as the Gospel of God. It is God's gospel. It is the, the gospel concerning His Son. It's not man's gospel. In fact, he says this explicitly in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not a gospel that man made up. It's not a gospel that, that man figured out. We didn't figure out how this thing works. We didn't figure out how to reconcile ourselves to God. We are not sharing our wisdom Rather, Paul says, I am preaching to you the gospel that was revealed. The gospel depends upon not, not man's wisdom, not man's intuition, but rather the gospel is rooted in God's revelation. It is a gospel that God reveals because it is God's gospel. In fact, he, he says this explicitly there in Galatians. He goes on to say, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself revealed this gospel to the Apostle Paul and then commissioned him to take it to the ends of the earth. And that has profound implications for, for any who would, who would claim to, to believe and to, to hold the apostolic gospel, that, that gospel proclaimed by Paul. It, it reminds us that any proclamation of the gospel must be rooted in God's revealed word. The gospel, as we understand it, must be taken from God's Word. It, it's not something that, that we are, are free to, to, to modify or make up how we see fit. And this means that our proclamation of the gospel must be rooted in the scriptures because the scriptures, the scriptures as we have them, the scriptures are God's word written. That's what we have in our hands. That's, that's what we appeal to each Sunday. We, we appeal to the Scriptures because the Scriptures are God's Word. They are God's revelation written, written down for, for generations to pass on from, from one to the next. Even as you receive this Word, you, you receive this Word from, from your parents who received it from, from their parents. This is God's Word written down for the church that we might hold on to it, that we might study it, that we might pass it on to our children. Here we have God's Word written. But how do we know? How do we know that this is God's Word 
written. That's a big subject, a subject that we, we spend an entire Sunday school class on uh, every once in a while. But, but here, uh, this morning, I, I simply want you to know that, that we know this to be God's Word written because He has made it abundantly clear. It, it, is, it is not something that we sort of think maybe we might have right. God has made it abundantly clear that the, that the Scriptures are His Word written. How? He, he has done this by validating those humans whom he chose to write it down. The prophets of the Old Testament were known. They were known because God validated them publicly, so much so that when Jehoshaphat comes to to Ahab, uh, Jehoshaphat asks, is there there a prophet of the Lord? And and, and Ahab knows exactly who he's talking about. (laughs) He says, yeah, there is. I don't like him very much because he never says anything nice about me. But I know who he is, and we can get him for you, and you can, you can listen to him. The prophets of the Old Testament were known because they were publicly validated. And that goes all the way back to Moses. Remember, how did, how did the people of God and how did the Egyptians know that Moses spoke for the Lord? Because God's power worked through him. He was validated. He was attested. And that validation, that attesting continued on into the New Testament. It wasn't true only for the authors of the Old Testament Scriptures, but it was true for the authors of the New Testament Scriptures as well. Jesus Himself was attested, we're told by the author of Hebrews. And those whom He chose to speak for Him, those whom He chose to to send out to the ends of the earth with His authority, they also were attested. They were attested by, by signs and wonders. God's power worked through them in such a way that left no doubt that these were men who spoke for God. And while much more could be said about that, that that is enough for you to to remember this morning that we know that the Scriptures of of the Old and the New Testament, we know that these Scriptures are the very Word of God because they were received as the Word of God as soon as they were written. It wasn't decades later or hundreds of years later or generations later that these uh, that the church decided that these were the Word of God. They were received as the Word of God as soon as they were written because they were written by men whom that generation knew to be the mouthpiece of God because they had been attested, they had been validated by the power of God working in and through them. And so it's a good thing that you received the Word from your parents and that your parents received it from their parents because we have an unbroken chain of one generation saying to the next, this is the Word of God. Going back to that first generation that received it from the men who wrote it down, men who had been attested and proven by the power of God at work in their ministry. So we know that the Scriptures are the Word of God, and this is why the Scriptures have to be the ground of all of our ministry. Because the Gospel is God's Gospel. It's rooted in God's Word, and God's Word is here in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And that has profound implications for us today as the church because we still believe the apostolic gospel. The gospel hasn't changed. We we hold to the same gospel proclaimed by Paul, the gospel that belongs to God, God's gospel rooted in God's word, rooted in the scriptures. And so if we would be an apostolic church today, if we would be a faithful church today, we have to be a church that itself is rooted in the Scriptures. The Scriptures have to be our final authority for all questions of faith 
and practice. We go to the Scriptures to know what it is that we should believe. What we should believe about God, what we should believe about ourselves. What we should believe about sin and what we should believe about salvation. The the Scriptures teach us the truth. We don't judge the Scriptures. We don't decide whether what the Scriptures say makes sense to us. We receive the Scriptures as the very Word of God. God, the the Maker of heaven and earth, the omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise One has revealed Himself in Christ. That revelation has been recorded in the Scriptures. And we now receive it, believing everything that it teaches us to be true. And not only do we receive it when it teaches us what is true, but we also submit to it when it teaches us what to do. When it, when it teaches us how we are to live in light of that truth. And so first, we submit to the Scriptures. We, we submit to the Scriptures, receiving what they proclaim to be as true. Not, not picking and choosing which doctrines we will believe. Not, not picking and choosing which doctrines we will affirm. And, and certainly not pitting one doctrine against another. The Bible teaches us that, that God is a God of love and that God is a God of justice, and we must hold both. We don't choose. Paul says, notice the, the kindness and the severity of God. You don't choose. He is who He is, and we submit to Him as He is revealed to us in His Word. We receive the whole counsel of God as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And that's, that's really a good test to, of, your, of your submission. You, you can test yourself. You can test whether you are submitting to the Scriptures and all that they teach by, by asking yourself, does, does the Bible ever teach something that I disagree with? <laughs> does the Bible ever teach something that I find hard to believe? Does the Bible ever, ever teach something that I find hard to accept? If you have a God who never contradicts you, if you have a God who, who never says anything that you find hard to understand, if you have a God who, who makes perfect sense to you, then whoever your God is, He's not the God of the Bible. He's a God of your own imagination. He's a God who you have created in your own image. Only a God of your own imagination is a God who, who you would not struggle to receive some of His Word. Because God is God. God is God. And, and we submit to Him. Not because we understand Him. Not because everything He says makes perfect sense to us. Not because we like it. We submit to Him because He is God and, and His Word is truth. And of course, we submit not only by receiving what He says, but by doing what He commands. Again, here we don't pick and choose, but our our submission extends to every aspect of our lives. We don't choose where we will obey. We obey because He is God. This is what it means to be in submission to the Word. We receive what He says. We receive what He demands. And we bow to Him as our rightful King. But there's more than this in, in uh, receiving the Bible as, as God's Word written. Because not only do we see that, the, that the, we are to submit to the Scriptures, but, but notice what the Bereans did. The, the Bereans studied and searched the Scriptures that they might understand it, that they might know what they say. And they are referred to as noble for this. It's, a, it's an example for us to follow. 
We, and we are to receive the Scriptures as the Word of God, not only by submitting to them, but by searching and studying them, that we might know them and we might understand them. And one way that you do that is, is what you're doing right now, by, by putting yourself under the, the faithful preaching of the Word coming together as God's people to hear God's Word preached, to hear God's Word taught. This is, this is one of the ways that we study and we search the, the Scriptures. We, we come under the teaching of the church. That's hard, I think, for, for many American Protestants today. We, we, we wonder. This is, this is one place where we wonder about God's design. We, we, we think inherently that, that authority resides in the individual. We, we find it difficult to, to acknowledge that God has, has given teachers and elders to His church who are to, to feed us and to lead us and to, to help us understand the Word. But certainly, this is God's design. It doesn't mean the church is infallible. It doesn't mean that I am infallible. But God has given pastors and teachers and elders to His churches that they might feed the people. They might feed the sheep with the Word of God. But of course, people being fed are to be like the Bereans. Because there's, there's more than just sitting blindly sitting under the teaching of the Word. You are to study and search the Scriptures to make sure that the things that you're being taught are true. Again, the, the Scriptures are not easy to understand. That's, that's not at all what we are suggesting. But you ought to be able to, to see when, when, a, when a teacher teaches that, that he is teaching from the Word. You have to be able to see that he is, he is drawing his truths from the Scriptures, from God's Word, and he's not going off in his own direction or making things up out of his own head. And so you are to be familiar with the Scriptures yourself. You are to read them for yourself. You are to study them for yourself. You are to, to follow along as we're preaching and teaching to make sure that, yes, okay, I see that there. Because this is what it means to, to treat the Scriptures as the very Word of God. So the question that we must ask ourselves, both as a, as a church and as individuals, is how rooted are we in the Scriptures? Are the Scriptures shaping and directing every aspect of my life? In Sunday school right now, we're, we're talking about the way we relate to our money. Do we steward our money in accord with God's Word? Do we steward our relationships in accord with God's Word? Do we, do we steward our sexuality in accord with God's Word? Do we, do we steward our citizenship in this nation according to God's Word? These are the questions that we must ask. Because Paul's ministry shows us that if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must be rooted in the Scriptures. But more than that, we must be rooted in the Scriptures properly understood. And that brings us to our second point. Because, Jesus, or because Paul reasoned from the Scriptures proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. Notice that. The, the center of Paul's ministry, the, the center of his proclamation was Jesus. Jesus, I proclaim to you, he said to the Thessalonians. Now again, this fits with what Paul tells us elsewhere and his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You ever thought about that phrase? What does that mean? What, what is Paul saying there when he says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? It, it can't mean that, that Paul never said anything except for Jesus was crucified. We, we know that in, intuitively. 
What is he getting at when he, when he says that I resolve to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified? I want to suggest to you that what, what Paul is saying is that, that everything he taught, the message that he brought to the church, which elsewhere he refers to as the whole counsel of God. Paul taught the whole counsel of God, but he taught the whole counsel of God as centering on and leading to and, and pointing to and climaxing in the person of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. That's what Paul means. Paul proclaims Jesus as the center and the, and the fulfillment of the whole story of redemption. The same thing that Jesus himself did on the, on the road to Emmaus when he, when he walked those, those two disciples through the, the Old Testament Scriptures saying that how all of it pointed to him. And so when we speak of being rooted in the Scriptures, it has to be the Scriptures properly understood. And the, and the Scriptures properly understood are the Scriptures as the story of Jesus Christ. Scriptures are not a collection of fables teaching us how to, to live well or, or wisely. They're not a, a collection of, of stories showing us how to have our, our best life now. They are the story of God's work of redemption. A work that brings, that is brought to completion in the person of Jesus Christ as He is offered up for our sins and raised again for our justification. So again, think about what this means for us. It means that we must submit to the Scriptures as the story of redemption fulfilled in Christ. That's what's going on. Submitting to the Scriptures is, is submitting to the Scriptures not as a, as a collection of fables, not as a, as, a, as, a, as a list of moral examples, but as the story of the One who emptied Himself that He might give His life as the ransom for our sins. That in Him we might be reconciled to the Father. Michael Horton says that, that much of the teaching in the church today is Christless, that is, without Christ. Much of the teaching in the church today looks to the Scriptures as, as helpful advice, as, as stories that, that give us good examples of, of how to, to live well. It's what has been called elsewhere moral therapeutic deism. It's, it's moral that makes us feel better, but it, but it keeps God at a distance. This is not to submit to the Scriptures. It doesn't matter if you're reading the Scriptures every Sunday. If you're, if you're reading them merely as advice, if you're reading them merely as, as examples of, of how to live, then you're missing the point. Because the Scriptures are the story of our Savior. The Scriptures are the story of, of God's promise to redeem for Himself a people worked out through generations and millennia and brought to completion in the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Will living according to God's Word improve your life? Actually, yes, it will. God's wisdom is profound and His ways are good. But if you seek to, to take the Scriptures and, and live according to them for the purpose of bettering your life now, they will crush you. And they will separate you from the grace of God. Because the Scriptures point you not to what you must do in order to, to live a better life now. But rather, the Scriptures point you to the One who lived a perfect life, 
then gave his life as the ransom for your redemption, that you who were lost in your sins might be made alive together in him and free to live that life to the praise of God's glory, both now and for all eternity. It's all the difference in the world. Reading the Scriptures as advice or reading the Scriptures as news, good news of what God has done. Here at Trinity, we seek to proclaim the Scriptures as good news. Good news for God's people. Because we know it is only when we receive the Scriptures as news, only when we receive the Scriptures as the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that they bring life. Life both now and forevermore. We proclaim to you this morning, even as Paul did there in Thessalonica, even as he did there in Berea, that Jesus is the Christ. And if you will receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. And you will be made alive together with Him to live both here and now to the praise of His glory and to enjoy Him for all eternity. And because Jesus is the center of the story, because the Gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in and through His Son, that is why we call it good news after all. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank You. We thank You that the Gospel is good news. We thank You that the Scriptures tell the story of what You have done. And Father, may you now open our ears to hear it. May you open our eyes to see him. May you open our hearts to, to love him and to rest upon him. And may you strengthen us to walk in the footsteps of faith after him. To the praise of your glory and our eternal good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.